It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, Truth is the property of no individual, but is the treasure of all men. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us. Give us your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive Seeker Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything we cover. Look for the Seeker Rewind button on our episode pages. Another great companion is our all-new Study Questions tool, an easy-to-follow, single-page of questions tied to scriptures for a great personal study or for your Bible study group. Check them out by clicking on the Bible study tab on our homepage. And we also do video. Look for new videos for all ages every week at christianquestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what is on the agenda for today? Well, Rick, our question is, should Christians care about the Jewish tabernacle? And our theme text is found in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. Okay, should Christians care about the Jewish tabernacle? As Christians, we follow Jesus. His life story is told in the New Testament of the Bible, and we rightfully focus on those books. Sometimes, though, our focus brings us away from the rest of the story, the Old Testament. We think, well, why do we need all of that Jewish history? Why do we need to know who conquered whom and how all the rituals worked that God required for the Jewish nation to show their loyalty to him? Well, the fact is we need the Old Testament, and we need it badly. This need is dramatically illustrated in the tabernacle, the portable tent and furnishings that the Jews carried with them during their 40-year wilderness experience. So coming up in today's podcast... Did you ever wonder why God was utterly meticulous when he told Israel of ancient time to build their tabernacle while wandering in the desert? Can you say, encoded message for Christians? In our first two segments, we lay the foundation for deciphering this message. Most of Christianity has practically no idea that the tabernacle is mentioned several times in the New Testament as relating to us. Our third and fourth segments show us where and what it all means. And finally, what if God was sending you a powerful personal message? You'd want to be around to receive it, right? Well, do not miss our final segment, because there is a message for you that comes from this tabernacle. Rick, the story that this tabernacle tells is breathtaking. Uh, It's a wonderful example of God's care and his foresight. The tabernacle is like a treasure map. Let's see where it leads. Jonathan, this is a very visual discussion. And uh, we needed to bring in the heavy artillery to help us discuss something visual on an audio program. (laughs) So we have our very special friend and brother in Christ, Tom Ruggiero, with us today. Tom, how you doing? 
I'm doing good. How are you, Rick and Jonathan? Good to be with you. It is good to have you with us. And Tom, just just briefly, who are you and, you know, just a little bit of your background and your interest in the tabernacle? Well, I'm an elder with the Chicago Bible Students. I've uh, grown up a Bible student. I've been an elder for about 30 years. Uh, the tabernacle is a subject that we regularly study here in Chicago, and we've gained some wonderful insights and precious truths that we've gleaned from our study of the Old Testament and the tabernacle especially. So Tom is here today to help us walk through this very visual thing. Now, folks, listen, if you're listening live, here's what I'd like you to do. If you're on the website, click the rewind button. And there you will see diagrams of what we're going to be talking about. If you're listening to the archive, click on the Rewind document to see these diagrams. We'd like you to be able to see the things as we talk about them because it'll help you to understand. We'll remind you of that throughout the podcast. All right, so Tom, let's get started. What was the tabernacle? Okay, well, that was a a very good suggestion about looking at it visually because that would really help. Uh, but but to, to put it simply, the tabernacle was a portable temple that was part of the law that God gave through Moses. Uh, if you want to read about it, you could find it in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. There's a lot of incredible amount of detail. And you know, when God gives extensive detail like he has in the tabernacle, our ears should perk up and we should go and see why is he giving us all this. Okay, so, so Jonathan, let's look at Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 22. And let them make a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Okay, so those two scriptures that Jonathan just read uh, say that the tabernacle was a place that God could dwell with them, and commune with them. Now, we're going to get into the specific furniture, but just real briefly, the Ark of the Testimony, uh, we're going to talk to a little bit later, uh, was a way for God to be present with Israel. We're going to see a number of evidences that he wanted Israel to understand his presence, and he gave them physical evidence for that. Okay, so here's the question. I mean, God can can make his presence known any way he wants to. So why why was the tabernacle necessary? Couldn't couldn't God just communicate through Moses or or use angels or, or do some other thing? Well, there's a lot of messages that God was trying to communicate there. And one of the really important ones was that he wanted Israel to learn that there are very specific standards that he requires for those who want a relationship with him. Uh, when talking about raising kids, I thought uh, Josh McDowell had a wonderful statement uh, that I'm going to adapt here. It says, rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Okay, rules without relationships lead to rebellion. And this is going to be a foundation for our conversation on the tabernacle. Tom, go ahead. Well, you can see why a good relationship with your kids is important. Uh, and it gives meaning to the rules that you give your kids. But if we can carry that principle to another level, we'll see that it's also true with God. The breakdown, when we look at the Old Testament history, the breakdown of Israel's relationship with God happened many times in Old Testament history. And, you know, as I studied that, I often wondered why on so many occasions did Israel abandon their worship of God and pursue idolatry? And I take this statement into this context, and I realize that the reason is because on many of those occasions, they didn't value their relationship with God. And because of that, they saw the laws that God gave them were simply depriving them of things they wanted, rather than 
a good father caring for his children and giving them guidance. So as we get into some of the specific lessons of the tabernacle, we'll see the same application for Christians today. If you and I, as Christians, do not value our relationship with God or our potential relationship with him, we're going to wander away and we're going to miss all the blessings and benefits that he brings into our lives. So as we study the history of Israel and the many rituals that God gave them to follow, we can learn what loyalty looks like. We can learn the value of being faithful to God and how to approach him. There is a prescribed method for coming to God. Okay, so the tabernacle is this tool to show God's presence. So, Tom, let's briefly describe what it looks like, what this tabernacle looks like, its size, its shape, its compartments, its furniture and materials, and so forth. A brief explanation of some of the pieces here. Okay, so try to visualize a small rectangular building surrounded by a large courtyard. That's basically it, a very simple structure. Uh, The building itself was only 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And the structure had two compartments that made it 45 feet feet long. That's really smaller than an average home. But my goodness, it was absolutely filled with significance for us today. And so now when we focus in on the building, we see that it was divided into two compartments. Now, only priests were allowed to enter the tabernacle. And only the high priest once a year was allowed to enter the second compartment compartment that we're going to talk to talk about uh, later. Now, the first compartment was called the Holy. And as you entered the Holy, it consisted, the entranceway consisted of five wooden posts that were overlaid with gold on which hung a beautiful embroidered linen veil. And these posts sat in sockets of copper. Now, the Holy took up two thirds of that building. So it was 30 feet long and 15 feet high. And then at the back end of the Holy, was another veil that divided the next room, and that room was called the Most Holy. And the reason it was called the Most Holy, we'll get into. Now, that veil was held up by four wooden posts that were covered in gold, and they were sitting in sockets of silver. Now, the fact that that room was 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 15 feet deep made it a perfect cube. So that's the basic layout of the structure of the tabernacle building. Okay, so it's two rooms. One is twice the size of the other. So what's this tabernacle actually made of? When we study the tabernacle, we're going to see a lot of gold. In fact, everything except the sockets, which held up the posts and the sideboards, were either solid gold or gold-plated. Now, the side walls of the tabernacle were made up of 48 individual boards that were overlaid with gold. They were mounted then in silver sockets that could easily easily be taken apart when the tabernacle was moved, as it often was. Now, the top of the building was not wood or gold like you'd expect. Instead, over the top were four soft coverings, uh, some Authorities suggest that at least two of these top coverings may have been in the tent shape with a peaked roof uh, for rain runoff and for weather. Okay, so, so Jonathan, run through what those four coverings were very quickly. Well, the first covering was white linen. It was embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet and images of cherubs. And that's in Exodus 26, 1 to 6. Now, the second covering was made of goat's hair. And that's in Exodus 26, 7 through 13. The third covering was ram's skin dyed red, and that's in Exodus 26, verse 14. And the fourth was some type of leather 
as the outmost covering. Some authorities suggest this was either seal skin or even from a manatee. Uh, and that's found in Exodus 26, verse 14. And again, folks, if you're listening live and you want to get a sense of what these things might have looked like, click the rewind button to see the diagrams of what we're talking about. And if you're listening to an archive, click on the rewind document to see these document to see these diagrams rather. So, so Tom, let's continue. We've got these four coverings over the buildings that are inside this courtyard. How did these coverings appear to somebody on the outside compared to someone who's in the holy or the most holy looking out from the inside? Well, you have a very different look depending on where you're standing because of that outer covering was manatee skin or or possibly seal skin. Uh, The outside just was not appealing. In fact, it was probably kind of ugly, (laughs) very unappealing. But now you stand in the holy and the most holy and you look up to the ceiling and you see this beautiful white linen embroidered with images of angels. You know, there is certainly a message there about things related to the worship of God. So really, the inside view versus the outside view is staggeringly different. And on the inside, you just get this sense. And we're going to get into the significance of that as we go. Go ahead, continue. And, you know, God is not um, concerned about making these grand temples that are just uh, overwhelming to the human senses. So here in the tabernacle, we see some important things. From the outside, serving God might look unappealing. And the reason is because he often asks us for sacrifice. And many times he wants us to change our life. Change is hard. Spiritual growth is difficult. So from the outside, when you focus on those things, the process can be very unappealing. But think about that. When you make the effort to look deeper, to understand that God doesn't ask sacrifice or change simply to make life difficult for us. And so as the name of both compartments suggests, you have the holy and the most holy. His purpose in everything he deals with is to make us holy, wholesome qualities of God. And when you try to define what holiness is, you always come up with qualities like love, kindness, compassion, generosity. And so I think the simple lesson as we look at the tabernacle is that if we persevere in our walk towards God and don't accept the world's perception of what God is asking of us, we will find that the rewards of pursuing holiness far surpass the costs of discipleship. There are simply great benefits in living a dedicated Christian life that the world in general just doesn't see or doesn't care to pursue any further. Okay, so just by the appearance of the tabernacle, we're gaining some lessons that probably most of us have never even begun to think about. So think about this. So far, we have an unattractive, portable building that God's people must haul around with them through the wilderness. So we have a portable, fenced-in building with literally tons of coverings. What was being hidden? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us directly at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. You know, the thing is, humanity is naturally drawn to the spectacular. We want to see the eighth wonder of the world. We want the most brilliant and intricate art on display for all. God is not at all about bringing everyone to see the spectacular. Instead, he's all about bringing his people to appreciate 
that which is sacred. And what we will see is the tabernacle from the outside is nothing to write home about. But what it means is spectacular in the sacredness that it brings us to. So, Tom, let's now take a look inside the holy, uh, what is there. And folks, I just want to remind you before Tom starts again, if you're listening live and you want to see some diagrams about the things we're talking about, and you're on the website, click the rewind button to see the diagrams of what, what these things look like. And if you're listening to the archive, click on the rewind document to see these diagrams. So, Tom, what's inside? Let's go with the holy here. Okay, when you step into the first compartment of the tabernacle structure called the holy, you're going to see three things. We'll call them pieces of furniture, but they're really unlike any furniture we're accustomed to seeing. Uh, When you enter, you see a a large candlestick uh, or menorah, as we sometimes call it. And the menorah provided the only light in the holy. The menorah was hammered from a piece of gold that weighed what the Bible calls one talent of gold. Now, we're not sure exactly how much one talent of gold was, but estimates vary from uh, anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds of solid gold. And I was curious, how much would that 100 pounds of solid gold be worth today? And it's actually worth just as raw gold around $2 million. But of course, being beaten into this beautiful piece of a menorah would make it worth a lot more. But even above that, when you look at what it represents, the picture makes it priceless. You know, and you can, folks can Google Tabernacle Menorah, and you get a sense of what it, it might have looked like. So that's, that's a kind of a cool thing to do. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, the menorah had a main branch in the middle, and then three branches coming out of each side. So there were seven branches. Each branch then was shaped into an alternating pattern of an almond and then a flower. And then the top part of each branch had a bowl shaped like an almond that contained olive oil for burning the lamps. Uh, Along with this were the necessary utensils for caring for the wicks and and keeping the oil filled. Now, just picture in your mind the lighting in the holy. You're in a room with gold-covered walls. In front of you and behind you and above you is white linen embroidered in multiple colors and images of angels. And so with seven wicks burning, flickering light against the golden walls really created a holy and somber atmosphere. It simply must have been beautiful and applied, really depicted a holy place there. Hmm. Well, I'll just mention here, I wasn't going to bring this up, but there's really no dimensions given to the menorah. We can actually just try to estimate its size by the amount of gold that was used. It was on the left side as you entered. And so these lamps were burn, kept burning 24 hours a day. Uh, in the morning and the evening, the priest would come in, trim the wick, fill the oil, so it was daily cared for. Except, of course, when they were moving, they, then they would bundle it up and, and transport it. All right, so you've got the sort of the atmosphere set by this with this, with this somber, beautiful, flickering lighting with all of these, the, the imagery around you. So it gives you a sense of, of holiness just being there. What, what about the table of showbread? Well, right across from the menorah was a small wooden table overlaid with gold. Here again, we're seeing more gold. Now, this table was only 27 inches high. Now, for me, I kind of measured that's about thigh high, so it's pretty small. Okay, so for me, it would probably be up to my chin. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, no, I didn't say that. You said that. (laughs) Anyway, continue. But these are small articles. It was 36 inches wide and 18 inches deep. So these off were meant to 
uh, designed this certain way because they were meant to travel. They were meant to be taken apart and moved periodically. Okay, well, sitting on the 12, on the table were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, and they were stacked in two rows each. And on top of each of the stack was some incense. And then on the table were several utensils that were used for, for maintenance of the table. Uh, I found it interesting that the word showbread can be translated bread of his presence. That gives us a hint that everything we see in the tabernacle contributed evidence to how God would be present with Israel. Now again, we see the contemporary application when we talk about some of the symbolism intended here. But keep in mind that everything we will see in the tabernacle will describe how he can be with us and how we can properly approach him. And then at the end of each week on the Sabbath, the priest would replace the bread and the old bread would be eaten by the priests. Okay, so they eat this bread. So once a week they eat the bread that's been sitting out. I mean, is it, is it kind of like stale? Is it? I mean, it's, it's been in the room for a long time. That's a good question. It doesn't <laughs> say. Uh, I would assume that because it's meant to be eaten, that there was a, a quality that preserved it for the priests. But the lesson that the priest had to eat it is an interesting when we go into the symbolism of, of what it means. All right, so that's that's coming up in a little bit. What about what about the incense altar in the holy? Well, um, the orientation of the tabernacle was that it faced east. So as you're entering it, you're coming in from the east side and you're walking west. So as the priest entered the holy, he's going west, and on his left side is the menorah. On the right side is a table of showbread, and directly in front of him was something called the incense altar. Now, the incense altar was a small wooden box, again, overlaid with gold, and it was just situated just in front of the second veil, the veil into the most holy. Uh, This was, again, small. It was 36 inches high and 18 inches square. And then hot coals were brought in from the altar that was outside in the court, And those coals were placed on this incense altar, and incense was then burned on it continually. You know, it's interesting because we don't usually think of an altar for just incense. You know, we always think about an altar for sacrifices. But this was something a little bit different. And again, we're going to get into the meaning of that as we go a little bit further. All right. So there was, was, I'm sorry, there was a connection to the sacrifices, though, because the coals came from that altar. So we're seeing a connection there that outside is the sacrifice, and the effect of it is in the holy as incense to God. Okay, so you've got the connection, this small altar, and it, and it served a very, very, very intricate purpose. Again, later we're going to develop that further. Now, let's go into the most holy. This is that really, really sacred room, uh, and this is the room that's cube-shaped. Yes. In fact, this was so holy that even the high priest could only go in once a year. Uh, the most holy contained only one item but it was the most important part of the whole tabernacle. It was called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. Okay, and you know that the Ark <laughs> of the Covenant, everybody knows that from Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's, this is the Ark that they built the movie around. So the Ark is a literal, actual, sacred piece of furniture in the most holy place that God gave to ancient Israel. That's what they build the whole, that, that whole movie around. It's something that's incredibly powerful, as we shall see. Go ahead. Yeah, actually, the Raiders of the Lost Ark actually pictured it correctly the way they drew it. Now, let me try to describe it in words. The Ark of the Covenant was actually comprised of two separate sections. The bottom section 
was a wooden box overlaid with gold, and it was 45 inches wide, three, three and three-quarter feet wide, 27 inches high, and 27 inches deep. But it's interesting that inside the box, there were the two tables of the law that God had given Moses. There was a golden pot that was filled with manna that never corrupted. You remember manna was what God gave them in the wilderness for food. Well, their food corrupted, but this manna was special. It never corrupted. And then the third item was Aaron's rod that budded. Of course, each of these things have a, had a story connected with it. We'll get into those a little bit later. So that's the bottom portion of the Ark of the Covenant. Sitting on top of this box was a piece called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was beaten from a solid piece of gold, and it was beaten into the shape of two angels at each end of the top. The angels had their wings outstretched, and they were touching at the very tips as they hung over the center of the mercy seat. And the angels were facing one another. They were looking down on the spot where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. Now, an interesting aspect of the Most Holy was also, and this is very significant, that there was a bright light indicative of God's presence. In fact, Jewish rabbis later coined a word just to describe God's glory. He called it the Shekinah glory, which means he caused to dwell. It was a word that conveyed God's presence very accurately. So when you hear that phrase, Shekinah glory or Shekinah light, you know that they're talking about the light that was in the most holy. And so, Tom, that light was was basically supernatural. There was no fire that was making that light glow. That's right. Okay. That's right. And again, it was to indicate God's presence right. with Israel. You see how many times God is emphasizing the fact that he's with them. Here's another evidence that was supernatural. Now, if you study the tabernacle, when it was first set up, uh, the cloud covered the entire tabernacle. And in fact, we're told that the glory of Jehovah filled the tabernacle so no one could enter. Moses couldn't go in. The high priest couldn't go in. But then after the initial dedication, the cloud stood over the most holy only. And at night, that cloud became a pillar of fire somehow, but that's the way it's described. And so that cloud must have been visible from any part of the camp of Israel since the tabernacle was situated in the very center of Israel's camp. And so when the cloud moved, Israel had to break camp, and they followed the cloud to the next camping place. So when that cloud moved, it became a major event for the Israelites. And Tom and Rick, this is described in Exodus 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire, to give them light, to go by day and night. So this is a very dramatic reminder that God is there. Sunny or cloudy day, didn't matter. You saw that cloud. Overcast night or bright starry night, you saw this pillar of fire. God literally showed them his presence. And Tom, you keep saying, that's what this is about. It's about the presence of God. You could see it from the outside, and boy, you could really, really see it from the inside. All right. Let, let, let's exit the tabernacle structure now, and let's look out into the court. What, what do we see in that courtyard area? Okay, as you go out into the rectangular building that we were just in, the holy, uh, you go out and you see another huge rectangle that surrounded the tabernacle structure. And this, the dimensions here was there's 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And there was a white linen curtain that formed the walls of the court. And these were held up by wooden posts, not covered in anything, just wood. (laughs) And they were in sockets of copper. And that curtain was seven and a half feet high, so it was intended not to be looked over. 
And so this separated all the activity in the court from the surrounding camp of Israel. Okay, big court, 150 feet by 75 feet. That's actually one quarter of a football field, just to give you some perspective. Okay, so in this courtyard area, what kind of furniture is out there? You know, again, I'm overwhelmed at how simple God makes his pictures. There were only two things out in in the court. There was an altar called the brazen altar, and then something called the laver. Okay. Uh, the brazen altar, you want, I'll go into what that looked like and what it was. Yep. Yeah, the brazen altar is a term used in our King James Bible. It actually should be translated copper. It was a copper altar. So again, it was a wooden box overlaid with copper, and it was seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. Okay, so now this one would have been right up to my chin. yeah and i probably would have been difficult to to lift that animal over and to get it onto the uh, onto the altar but the altar had horns at each corner and there was a copper grate halfway down where the animal sacrifices were actually burned it was the first item that you would see when you came into the court from the camp and this is where where all the sacrifices were altar and, and there were course many many different kinds of sacrifices with the tabernacle that we're not gonna have time to get into but all are very significant okay so we've got the altar the place for sacrifices what about this laver thing you were talking about well now as you're walking west from the entrance you pass the brazen altar and you now come to um, something called the laver it was a polished copper receptacle for water it's where the priests would wash their hands and feet before entering either the tabernacle structure or where they would wash before offering any sacrifices on the brazen altar. And so it was situated between the brazen altar and the door of the tabernacle. Now, like the tabernacle, like the candlestick, there's no dimensions given to the labors. I, I wonder sometimes if there's significance in the fact that there's no dimension given to two articles. Uh, we don't know exactly what the labor looked like, but some scholars believe that it may have been separated with a, a bowl at the bottom where the priests could wash their feet and another basin higher up where they could wash their hands. And it's interesting where the copper came from. We're told that the copper for the laver was donated from the looking glasses of the Hebrew women. Now, glass mirrors had not been invented, and they were, in fact, they were only invented a couple hundred years ago. So copper was highly polished as a looking glass, and here it was used in the laver. So there was a reflective quality to this labor. Okay, so a simple item for washing that had no dimensions, and there's so many details that, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Tom, one more thing? No. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right, I thought you were getting my attention. Uh, okay, so, so the tabernacle, here is the thing, the tabernacle is mentioned in the book of Acts, but there it's called the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. Why would it be described that way? There's not a whole lot of people around except for Israel. And Jonathan, let's let's use look at Acts seven forty four. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Well, Rick, you had mentioned um, earlier that this was uh, used by Israel in the wandering in the wilderness for forty years. Well, that's why the tabernacle was portable. Every time the cloud or pillar of fire moved, Israel had to take it apart. They had to take up stakes and move with it. That's why it's called a witness 
in the wilderness. So, you know, it's interesting because the tabernacle then dictated their movements. And I think that's an interesting thing. God was with them. He showed them and he told them when it was time to leave. So that explains why it's in the wilderness. But why is it called the tabernacle of witness? Because that's an un- unusual statement. Yeah, that's, uh, to me, one of the most significant things we might learn tonight. The tabernacle was a witness to Israel of God's presence with them. So he went, why did God have to witness to them? Yeah. <laughs> but notice that the Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of Testimony. It was the box. It was the box under the mercy seat that was, if you're going to be real specific, it was the box that was called the Ark of Testimony. And remember what was inside the box. There were the two tables of the law, there was Aaron's rod that budded, and there was this golden pot of manna. Each of those things was God's way of saying, remember these things. These were evidences that I am with you. And when we look at each of the specific things, you could do a whole study on each one in particular. But he showed that he was with Israel when he gave them the law. That was represented in the stone tablets. Okay. All right. So now let's let talk about a little bit about Aaron's rod that budded, because that's a very curious thing. Well, that's a very interesting story connected with Aaron's rod. Uh, if you want to read some of the details, read Numbers chapter 15 and 16. In chapter 15, we, we read about a fellow named Korah, and he led a rebellion of a group of leading Israelites who were challenging the authority of Moses and Aaron. They're saying, you're taking too much on yourself. Why do you think God chose you? And so it was kind of a sad scene for some of the rebels because God dealt with them. But then each of the leading men then were required to bring a wooden staff. And God said that he would indicate his choice for who would be taken as the priestly family. And as you might guess, because Aaron's rod was in the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron and his family were chosen when Aaron's rod blossomed and it actually produced almonds. Hmm. And so having Aaron's rod in the Ark of Testimony suggests that God was with Israel as evidenced by his selection of a priesthood, which should act as a go-between between God and the people of Israel. So the priesthood was evidence that God was with Israel. So that's the second item. The third item in the Ark of Testimony was this golden pot of manna that never went bad. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point on that, because the manna that they collected would go bad if they didn't use it. And so this is manna that never went bad, and really is showing us God's care for them. Yes, that's exactly the point. You remember, as they wandered in the wilderness, they complained that they didn't have food, and so God miraculously sends down this manna. Well, by having this pot of manna in the Ark of Testimony, he's saying, Israel, remember... Remember the past when I delivered you. Remember the time I provided for you. And all the other things that he provided for him, these are remembrances that he miraculously fed Israel in the wilderness. And so these were God's witnesses of his presence with Israel. And it's interesting that it's also called the Ark of the Covenant. And it's telling them that his presence was with them through the law covenant. He gave them laws that they agreed to obey this was their covenant relationship with him. And so again, it goes back to the concept of relationships, that there is a certain way to approach God, that he is approachable, but we have to do it his way. In fact, the entire tabernacle arrangement was a witness that God was with Israel. They could see the cloud by day, and they could see the pillar of fire by night, 
And that was another witness. Every day they could look up and say, yes, he's still there. I see his cloud. I see the pillar. And so they understood that the sacrifices he instituted and gave them uh, helped establish a relationship with God. Interesting, too, when a priest entered the holy and most holy, if he came out alive, that was evidence that God was satisfied with what was being done there. Because if he did it wrong, he wouldn't come out alive. So this term, tabernacle of witness, is very, very significant. So it really is a witness to them of his presence. Okay, so we have a two-room portable building that is lightly sprinkled with admittedly unusual furniture. This tabernacle is at least unique and mysterious. Why would God design it this way? It's been a privilege and exciting interacting with our listeners all over the world. Reach out to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com. In addition to always continuing the conversation on our website, in social media, and our YouTube channel. Learn more about becoming a Christian Questions Ambassador. There are several impactful ways you can help us continue to spread the gospel message. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Support CQ in the top navigation menu. Join our incredible team of volunteers and find out more. Now back to Rick and Jonathan. You know, God's pattern of communication in our present evil world has always been the same. He will reveal his mind and plan to those who seek to understand them through their loyalty to him. God wants us to look, to search, and discover, because in so doing, we will be better able to appreciate what we will find. So we have with us Tom Ruggiero walking through the tabernacle of the Old Testament. It is a very visual lesson that we're working on today. So folks, if you are listening live and you want to get some of the visuals along with the audio descriptions, click on the rewind button to see the diagrams that we're talking about. All of the, the, the furniture and, and the structure is all in the diagrams. If you're listening to the archive, click on the rewind document to see these diagrams. So Tom, let's get back to it. How do we know the tabernacle was meant for Christians? Because it was a very Jewish thing. Why do we look at this with such seriousness for us? You know, sometimes we we separate ourselves from the Old Testament, and we really hurt ourselves by doing that. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. In the book of Hebrews, he talks about it. He tells us that the tabernacle, and the phrase he uses it, was a shadow of heavenly things. And he says that Moses was given very specific instructions, uh, very detailed instructions, on how it should be built because it was designed to picture something greater than itself. And Paul tells us in Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 3 and verse 5, We have such an high priest who was set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. Yeah, why would God give us uh, something like the tabernacle and say this is an example and shadow of heavenly things? And then we say, well, we're not going to study it. You know, we're just going to study the New Testament. It's there to study. Paul is saying that we have a high priest who is Jesus, who serves a more important sanctuary, and he calls it the true tabernacle. But he indicates that the offerings of the ancient tabernacle were a shadow or or an image of better sacrifices to come. And also in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul adds, 
Now, all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our ad- admonishment, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Yeah, he's making this very specific for those uh, uh, Christians who live in the next age after the Jewish age. It's interesting that in that text that Jonathan just read, the, the Greek word uh, for ensamples is not a word we usually use, but it's the Greek word tupos. In English, it's the word type. Now, to get the meaning, think of the old lead letter fonts that would be used in, in the printing process years ago. The, the lead letters would be inked up and then pressed against the paper, and they'd be used for printing. And so the metal font was the type. The imprint that it made was the antitype. Or for those of you who are old enough, you might remember a typewriter. It's the same point. There was a metal type that struck the paper with ink, and it created an antitype. And so Paul is saying by examining the Old Testament types, and of course the tabernacle is just full of them, we can see the meaning of the reality in Christ and New Testament concepts. Use a very similar term in Colossians 2.17. He says the features of the Jewish law are a shadow of things to come. Well, that's why we study these things, to help us get a clearer understanding of the good things to come in God's plan and how it deals with sin how it brings blessings from this experience with sin. And for Christians, we will see a very profound illustration of how to properly approach God. This was Israel's instruction book on how to approach God. But in the antitype, we see that it's the Christian's blueprint for how we can approach God. And so if we understand why he asks us to do certain things, and appreciate those reasons, we will value our relationship with him and make progress as we journey towards him. Well, Tom and Rick, the tabernacle is one of my favorite subjects. It actually was a big part of my um, decision to dedicate my life to the Lord. What it showed me in a picture language made so much sense and, and how to properly follow in Jesus' footsteps. And uh, I'm so happy that Tom is walking us through this. It's going to be amazing what he shows us of what these pictures represent. I'm thrilled. You know, we we need mental imagery to help us understand concepts. And so when God gives us concepts, he gives us ways to look at it from different angles. And I think the tabernacle gives us a really neat perspective on how to look at our consecrated life style in him. You know, and, and, and the whole point of this is this is showing us God's presence in all kinds of ways and, and the walk that we have to walk, and we're getting to that. So, so Tom, let, let's continue. What, what is some of the symbolism intended within the tabernacle? Well, that's such a, that's a huge question, <laughs> and I'm almost frustrated that we've only got an hour and a half because we're, we're missing a lot, but we're going to start on a simple level. We're going to look at the furthest point in the tabernacle. We're going to go back into the most holy and look at that first. And the psalmist gives us some insight in Psalms 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. That, that's pretty cool. It's, there it's saying that God's presence with Israel is described as between the two angels that were on the mercy seat. Remember how he described the mercy seat as those two angels facing each other. That means that the most holy chamber itself represents heaven. Now, there's a New Testament incident that you might remember that I think is very significant and connected here. 
If you remember in Matthew 27, it talks about that at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple was torn in two. That's referring to the second veil, the one that goes into the most holy at the temple, the one between the holy and the most holy. And you wonder, why would God do that? Why would he tear the temple, tear the temple veil at the moment of Jesus' death? So, so Tom, just, just a point of clarification, because you're talking about a permanent temple at the time Jesus died, but our whole discussion is about the tabernacle. Is the temple built to reflect the tabernacle because of the holy and most holy? Yes, very much so. You remember we said the tabernacle was a portable temple while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Well, after their wandering was over, they were brought into the Holy Land, and eventually Solomon was able to build a glorious temple, but basically patterned after the structure of the tabernacle. And then when Solomon's temple was destroyed, uh, eventually the Jews were taken into captivity. But when they returned after the Babylonian captivity, they rebuilt the temple, and it still was patterned after the tabernacle. So the symbolism is very similar. And Paul explains what this meant when he wrote some verses in Hebrews 10, verses 19, 20, and 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he had consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And I'll take that verse and superimpose it over the tabernacle and over that second veil. What Paul is saying is that through Jesus' death, heaven, which is pictured in the most holy, is now accessible. Those who now live by faith in that blood can, upon their death, enter heaven, an opportunity that was simply not available before Jesus' death. It was his death that was the satisfaction of God's justice. Now think about this. That's what was pictured in the killing of the bull on the Day of Atonement. Its blood was sprinkled on and before the mercy seat, there in the most holy. And it was because of this application of blood that God's mercy the mercy seat could be extended. That's why it's called the mercy seat, because once the blood satisfied justice, mercy could now act. And that's why the angels are looking down upon the place where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled before God's mercy could be fully extended. Justice had to be satisfied. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, see, so so you've got this sense of Jesus' death uh, was the pivot point of the entire plan. And so the rending of this of this curtain was a dramatic physical example. Something had dramatically changed and would never be the same. Yes. Jesus was the first one to enter heaven from earth. And now that he opened up the way that veil has been torn open, others can follow. So, so these verses in Hebrew tell us that passing through the second veil that was between the holy and most holy, that that passing through represents the death of Jesus' human life. And so his death opened up the veil of heaven. And that's going to help us see that the passing through of the second veil also pictures the death of the Christian's flesh. And if that Christian is found faithful, that passing through will be the reward into heaven following just as it happened to Jesus. So we're talking about the the entrance into the most holy, and we're seeing that that has, actually has a, a, a representation for us that's significant, and we're actually going to come back to that again a little bit later. So Tom, let's back up from the most holy to the holy. 
Okay, that's a good thing. The room there represents a special condition of the Christian, a special relationship with God, the condition that occurs before the Christian can go to heaven. And that's described in Psalm 91, verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Yeah, that's a great passage. That's telling us that the holy was a sort of secret place. And it was because only priests could enter there. And then Paul told us in the Hebrew text we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 10 that we should draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Well, that describes the holy. It describes the holy as a condition of faith in Christ and that the holy is the path to a new and living way beyond the veil. Now, here's an interesting detail that struck me when I was reading this. I mentioned earlier that the tabernacle building was made up of wooden boards overlaid with gold. But what I didn't say was that these boards were set in 100 silver sockets. And what struck me about this this is where the silver came from. The silver came from a poll tax on the men of Israel. Okay, so a poll tax. What is a poll tax? Okay, maybe that's a a bad phrase, but it was uh, a census taken of all the men of Israel. And depending on how many men there were, they had to pay a certain amount of tax that went to the building of the tabernacle. We read that in Exodus 30, verses 12 and 15. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than one half a shekel, when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Okay, so the silver came from this tax, which was described in those verses as a ransom price for their souls. Interesting. And this next text will tell us what was done with that silver. Continuing in Exodus um, chapter 38, verse 27. And the hundred talents of silver were cast, the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, and a hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. Yeah, I love the fact that whether they were rich or poor people, uh, men, everyone had to pay the same half shekel of silver. And it's described as a ransom. And so by using this ransom silver for the sockets, the very foundation of the tabernacle, God is saying that his plan of salvation is based on atonement. In, in this, this fact that everyone paid the same price, it shows that sin is a great leveler of man. The rich die just like the poor, all pay the same price for sin. But the fact that the foundation of the tabernacle structure was built on this ransom silver shows that the whole purpose of the tabernacle is pointing towards reconciling mankind with God by offsetting their sin with the payment of a ransom price. See, now, the average person is never going to see the details of God's plan unless we really, really study to try to find what it means. And when you put the scriptures together, Old and New Testament, you begin to see an amazing, an amazing picture. So, the rooms actually have a meaning for Christians, showing us our present and future. Who would have thought? We have the general picture of what the holy means. What about the furniture? Why is it there? 
Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. It's now obvious that every item and aspect of this portable tabernacle was placed and designed for multiple purposes. For Israel, this was all a tangible doorway to the presence of God in their everyday lives. And for Christians now, it also serves as a powerful reminder of how we reside in the presence of God. And that's something we need to always understand. This is there to show us his presence and his, his plan. So we have with us Tom Ruggiero discussing the tabernacle of Old Testament times back in the days when Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And folks, because this is such a visual program, if you're listening live, click the rewind button to see the diagrams that show you what we're talking about. If you're listening to the archive, click on the rewind document and you can follow along with these diagrams. So we've looked at the holy as a room. So now let's look at the meaning of the items within that room, the holy. What symbolism is in those three pieces of furniture? Tom, let's start with the candlestick. Okay, well, the, the holy is just an amazing picture of what God has provided for the followers of Christ. The candlestick, as we said earlier, was the only source of light in the holy. And we know that light represents truth. And it's pictured really well, Tom, in Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Yeah, we think about that. You know, we all need guidance. We all need direction. And when it comes from God, I mean, it's flawless. And so as a Christian lives a dedicated life, we're not left without guidance. We've God's got, we have God's word pictured by the light of the candlestick to guide our path. There are principles there. There are guidelines. There's advice there. There's help. The light was created by the burning of the oil. And in scripture, olive oil represents God's spirit. So we gain understanding from the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the one of the pictures there. You know, but there's another picture that we'd like to draw on, and that comes from Revelation 120. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. You notice that the Revelator talks about seven golden candlesticks. Now, this is a very similar picture to the candlestick of the tabernacle. But Revelation says that there were seven churches that he will go on to describe and that these seven churches are pictured by seven separate candlesticks. But we get that same concept in the tabernacle where there are seven branches to this one candlestick. Now, in the context of Revelation, he goes on to show a progressive picture through the Christian age of seven distinct stages of the church. And so that's why there's seven uh, candlesticks. But when we go back to the holy of the tabernacle, there it's meant to convey a oneness between Jesus and the church. That's why there's one menorah, one candlestick. There's a main stem, and there are three branches coming out of each side. And that, to me, is similar to what Jesus said in John 15, where he said, I am the vine. There's that main branch. You are the branches. We come out of him. Okay, so Revelation, while the number is seven and their candlesticks, is a very different picture, uh, but you have the similarity in seven, but a, a completely different picture is what you're saying, right? Different but similar. 
right? Because in, in Revelation, the candlesticks are still the true church. In the holy, it's still the true church. But there in the holy, it's, it's emphasizing the unity with Christ. Right. In Revelation, it's emphasizing the division of time in the gospel age where this church spans 2,000 years. You know, then, then when we look at the intricate design of each branch, we see that there was an alternating fruit and then an almond and a, and a flower. And that, in my mind, depicts character development. Paul calls our character uh, development as the fruits of the Spirit. I think that's beautifully pictured in the design of each of the branches. So this menorah is a composite picture of Jesus and the church enjoying the light of truth. But it also shows them as light bearers of God's truth. Remember, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's him as part of the candlestick. But then he said to his disciples, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And so when we look at the menorah, we see multiple pictures. The light is God's word. His Holy Spirit is shown by the oil. And the stand itself is Jesus and the church as bearers of God's word. You know, there's a, a wonderful quote in a, in a precious book called Notes on the Tabernacle by Anton Fry that I think gives us a good insight that this light is more than just knowledge. The import of light in the scriptures usually extends beyond the spheres of the intellect into that of the conscience, covering the domain of duty as well as verity. The children of light are those who obey as well as perceive the reality of the invisible and the eternal. Yeah, I, I think that's an awesome statement. That's why I thought we had to read it. And it's basically saying it's not enough to have the right knowledge. Knowledge is important. Knowledge of God, however, should lead to obedience. Those two go together. If you have knowledge without obedience, then you've taken it in vain. So for Christians, obedience is an all-encompassing concept. It affects every aspect of our lives. Okay. So there, there's a lot to be drawn from this candlestick and the branches and, and the symbols that are on it. Where, where was this candlestick situ situated in the holy? Well, again, when you, when you first walk into the holy, it's on your left side as you walk. It's on the south Okay. The side of the room. Okay, so now let's move across the room then and examine the symbolism of the table that you were talking about earlier, the table of showbread. Okay, we mentioned that this small table held 12 loaves of bread in two stacks, and on top of each stack there was some incense, and that every Sabbath the bread was replaced with fresh bread, and the bread that was removed was given to the priests to eat. And so that eating it by the priests is a picture of how Christians are nourished by spiritually eating the Word of God. And Tom and Rick, I love the picture of the six uh, loaves on one side and six on the other. And there are 66 books of the Bible. And, I, and it's talking old and new, make it complete. The value is total in the Scriptures, in God's Word. So I think this table of showbread is really picturing the Word of God. Yeah, and you know, there's there's different ways of looking at it, and they all have value. I think for Israel, the 12 loaves depicted the 12 tribes of Israel. And the revelator picks up on that, and he says the 12 tribes of Israel represent 12 divisions in the church class. And so there's a natural application for Israel. There's a spiritual application for the church. But it all depicts nourishment, nourishment from spiritually eating the Word of God. Oh, that's 
also beautiful, isn't it? Oh, let me mention one other thing. We were talking about it earlier, about that incense that's on top of the bread. You know, once when the bread was eaten at the end of the week, the, the, the priest would take that incense and he would burn it on the incense altar. And to me, what that says is once you imbibe, you take in the word of God and you have this heart appreciation and love for it, your natural response is going to want to go over to the incense altar and thank God for it, praise him for it. So there's a sense of appreciation that is connected with the idea of eating that showbread. And I love what Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might by his spirit in the inner man. Yeah, yeah, there's a strengthening of our Christian lives. You know, there's another aspect that we have to relate to this, and that's with Jesus. Remember, he said that he was the bread of life. In other words, his his sacrificial death was um, giving life you know, to, to those who believe in him. And so he was the bread of life. And so by spiritually partaking of that bread, by eating it, we are expressing our faith in his ransom sacrifice. You remember when he said uh, to the Israelites, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they took that literally. Well, he was talking about his death being a compensation for sin. And so that whole concept of the ransom sacrifice of Jesus is the fundamental truth of Christianity. Accepting that fact strengthens us, and it tells us that we are not worthy of life as we are. An atoning sacrifice was needed to make that possible. And so only by spiritually partaking of this bread of life can we have the witness that God is with us. Remember, it was a table, it was a showbread to show that God was with Israel. Again, another piece that shows us God's presence in all of this. What about that incense altar? You've already alluded to it. Let's get into a little bit more detail on it. Okay, again, straight ahead, as you're looking to the second veil, the incense altar was just in front of the the second veil that led into the Most Holy. And when incense was burned on this incense altar, it not only filled the Holy, but also the smoke of the incense went into the Most Holy and covered the mercy seat. In Psalm 141, verse 2, we read, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and let the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Yeah, so here we see the psalmist telling us that the incense is a picture of prayer and praise. Remember, there was also some incense on the bread that I mentioned earlier, another expression of our appreciation of what we gained over there. And then there's a passage in Revelation chapter 8, And that's verse 3 and 4. Yes. (laughs) And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with prayer of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came up with prayers of the saints, ascended up before God. This is an interesting distinction that's being made here. Here it says the incense is offered with the prayers of the saints. And I think it's a good reminder not to leave Jesus out of these pictures. It says the smoke of his incense is the remembrance of his own sacrifice. Smoke is a picture in scripture of something in the past. So here, the smoke of his incense is a remembrance back to what Jesus did. This is what makes our incense of prayer and praise acceptable to God because Jesus offered his first 
That's why, in a very practical way, it's the most proper way to end our prayers by saying that we come to God in Jesus' name. He preceded us. He made, some, he made our prayers acceptable to God. You know, and, and that's a, a huge point. You, you wouldn't think you'd see a picture of Jesus in our prayers so dramatically stated in this ancient, ancient, portable place of worship. And yet, there it is. Yeah, we come to God through Jesus, and that's shown right there that it's offered with the prayer of the saints. You know, there's also an interesting connection between the incense altar and the brazen altar that's out in the court. Uh, We're told that hot coals were taken from the brazen altar, they were brought into the holy, and they were placed on the incense altar, and the incense was sprinkled on those hot coals. And I think that shows a relationship between those two altars. That shows that when offered properly, the physical sacrifices we offer, pictured out in the court, pictured by these hot coals from the brazen altar, they bring praise to God. The result is that God is pleased with them, and it's something beautiful to them, to him. And so in the holy condition, the Christian is supplied with everything needed for spiritual growth. And it describes a certain lifestyle that is holy to God and where our prayers and praises are heard. It's the condition that God created so that we could have communion with him and a relationship with him. You know, our communion and relationship with him is very much on his terms, not on our terms. And that's what the tabernacle is showing us. And it, and it helps us to understand what this life of sacrifice really should be bringing us to. All right, so, so, so we've gone through the most holy, and we backed into the holy. Now let's go back out into the court, the courtyard area. What, what symbolism for a Christian study do we see here in this courtyard? I guess we're doing this all backwards, but <laughs> I, I thought it was easier to start in the Most Holy. Well, now coming back into the court, we're seeing another condition, a condition that preceded what is pictured in the Holy. And Paul makes an interesting comparison. He describes these two conditions actually in Romans, the fifth chapter. Verses 1, 8, and 9. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Yeah, justification is huge. It's a huge Christian concept. Being justified means being made right with God. But being justified by faith is different than being justified by blood. Paul makes that point. He said much more now than being justified by faith. Much more, we are justified by blood, and we will be saved. So he's making a distinction between faith and blood justification. Of course, faith is required in both, but there is a difference in what Paul is saying that progresses us from one condition to the other. And this is what the Apostle John said in John 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So that's the next step. That's the step into the holy. The ability to become sons of God began upon Jesus' death. We saw that with the tearing of the veil. Now that Jesus has provided the ransom, we can be justified by blood. And that's what makes us sons. So in the progressive picture of the tabernacle, The court 
represents a condition of faith that we exist in prior to entering the holy condition. You can have a measure of faith in God, but then in order to enter the holy condition, you must dedicate your life to God and receive the merit of Jesus' sacrifice. Then you have progressed one giant step closer to God. So taken together, we see a progressive picture of a Christian's approach to God. And you mentioned this earlier, Rick, that there is a proper and only one way to approach God. You can't do it any other way. This is the prescribed method. And and, it, and it's important to understand that what this tabernacle is showing us, we did start in the most holy place and we're backing out. And you can see that when you enter into the court, you are working your way towards the highest of high high privileges. And so we're in this court area now discussing what happens out there. So now let's get to this brazen altar, the big altar that's in the court area. Yeah, you know, every time you comment, Rick, I want to pick up on what you said, that these are not pictures of obligations. These are pictures of privileges. And if we see things as obligations, we're going to tend to resist them. But if we see them as honors and privileges to approach God, we're going to value them. Well, when we look at the brazen altar, it's the first thing you would see when you entered the court. Uh, it was the place they sacrificed the animals. And so on this altar, on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices were burned there. Now, again, we don't have time to get into any great detail, but what was actually burned on the altar on the Day of Atonement was not the whole animal. It was the liver and the kidneys of the two atonement sacrifices. Think about that. Why would he choose those organs? Those organs are the ones that purify our body. And so, again, this enforces the idea that the sin offerings were for the purification of sin. You know, I, I, it, it's astounding that the details are all there. And when you just look at the burning of those specific pieces, it's giving you another picture to look at. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah, you know, the, the Apostle Paul makes the point that these literal animal sacrifices of the, tamp, of the tabernacle did not actually have atoning value, but that they were meant to foreshadow greater sacrifices that were yet to come from their time. And he says that in Hebrews 10, verses 1, 4, and 5. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Yeah, studying Hebrews is vital in our understanding of the tabernacle. Paul goes on to say that the sacrifices in the literal tabernacle had to be done every year. But when Jesus came, his sacrifice was offered just once because it was not symbolic. It was the sacrifice of a perfect human life, and it had real atoning value. When the blood of Israel's atoning sacrifices was taken to the most holy, it's interesting that it was sprinkled on and before the mercy seat. And when you image that in your mind, you see the shape of a cross. That was a picture of how Christ's blood can actually atone for sin on God's mercy seat. That is the focal point of God's plan. It's the reason God's plan will work and provide for the resurrection of all mankind in the millennium. Well, Rick and Tom, this picture of the blood sprinkled in a cross should bring tears to our eyes for Jesus' love for his heavenly Father and his followers. 
his faithful sacrifice to death is what we need to see in that symbol of the cross. And we read in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Amazing, amazing pictures. You know, who would have thought that the furnishings in two rooms in a courtyard could so clearly define our Christian walk? So this tabernacle clearly defines our walk towards Jesus. What does the final big picture look like? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. You know, we always want to get to the bottom line. With the tabernacle, this is a, an actually difficult because what we've described so far is just scratching the surface of what it all really means. There's one thing we can be sure of. God designed it this way for us to see what our lives are supposed to look like. And he designed it this way so we'd have to investigate so we could see what our lives look like. Because the investigation process gives us the sense of working toward God. And when you do the investigation, you see the blessing and you see the guidance and you see this incredible message. So folks, again, this is a very visual picture that we're talking about. If you're listening live, click the rewind button to see the diagrams of what we're talking about with the the tabernacle itself and the furniture. If you're listening to the archive, click on the rewind document and you can see these diagrams as well. So Tom, our final segment here, let's begin to put the pieces together tie all of these pictures together for us as Christians? Well, you know, there's so many details that it's very easy to get lost in the details. But it's good to take a step back. And when we do that, we see a very interesting picture being formed. Uh, The tabernacle offers primarily a progressive picture of the walk of a Christian. It starts out in the world, pictured out in the court, beyond the court, out in the camp of Israel. And when you think of that condition of the world, we realize that there's no connection with God out there. We have no relationship with him in the world. And as an individual draws to God, he symbolically approaches the tabernacle and enters the court. But it's important to remember that there's only one way to approach God, and that's through the blood of Christ. So now he's in the court. There's one step of faith needed to even get to that point. He had to be willing to draw closer. And so as he enters the court, the first thing he sees there is the brazen altar on which the sacrifice of Jesus was symbolically conveyed. So standing there, he smells the burning organs. It's a a pretty pleasant smell. (laughs) And, of course, that illustrates a measure of appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ, at least on a human level. He's coming closer. He's seeing something of value there. Okay, so you come into this courtyard, the journey has started, and it starts with the observation, and you see that sacrifice of Jesus, and now it comes to appreciation. So that's how we start, with observation and appreciation. Yeah, it starts outside with the desire to find something better. It draws, and he sees the sacrifice of Christ, and there's a measure of appreciation there. And then as he progresses further, he comes to the laver, the place for washing. And if he's rightly exercised by this he understands that he needs cleansing from sin you you just saw a sacrifice on the previous altar that means there's a reason for that sacrifice 
And so if that individual wants to progress closer to God, he then has to go on. He has to go beyond the desire to be cleansed from sin, and he has to pass under the first veil. Now, this is interesting. Remember that we said that there were five posts holding up the first veil, and they were set in sockets of copper. Copper represents human nature. You know, remember, copper is reddish in color, kind of like human blood, and it's not as valuable as silver or gold. And I think the five posts represent the dedication of our five senses, not three, not four. This is a complete dedication. We call that consecration, and we get that word really from the consecration of the priesthood. And so that's described for us in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so, so when an individual dedicates his life to God, he symbolically enters this holy condition. And now he can benefit by all the things that are illustrated there. He's got the enlightenment of Scripture and the Holy Spirit at the menorah. He has a spiritual nourishment that's provided for him at the table of showbread that shows God's presence through the, through the bread, which is Jesus. And then he has the ability to offer acceptable prayers to God at the incense altar. And then that second step mentioned in Romans 12 then starts to take place for that person while he dwells in the holy. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the purpose of being in the holy, to be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that we can understand God, understand his will, and be acceptable to him. So the journey that started with observation and appreciation now continues with actions of faith and thorough loyalty. That's right, and dedication. This is the procedure. This is the way to approach God. It is the only way acceptable to him. And then there's one last step. When proving faithful, the flesh dies, and the individual passes beyond the second veil, just as Jesus once did. He then enters the glories of heaven and the very presence of God. That just is mind-boggling to me that anyone could actually be in the presence of God. And, of course, there's so much more in the tabernacle. We haven't even touched the many different sacrifices offered and what they represent or the symbolic function of the priesthood. We're really only touching the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so, Tom, we're, we're, we're moving along here. As a kind of a wrap-up question, what, what can we learn from this Old Testament tabernacle that we maybe could not have learned without it? What's unique about the lessons we're getting here? Well, I know we would get to this question, and so I thought a lot about this. And I think the answer is on many different levels. We see that God went to great effort in creating all the tabernacle services, the sacrifices, the materials, the color, the priesthood itself. And that was over 3,600 years ago. And to me, that says that God has had the salvation of this world planned for a very long time, because that really is the primary picture of the tabernacle. In fact, in Revelation 13, 8, we're told that our salvation was planned even before the earth was formed. Now, that shows that God devised a long-term plan and that things in this world are not just happening at random. It shows that he knew atonement would be necessary even before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And here's, to me, 
where his great wisdom comes in. God knew, he knew that we would benefit from the experience with sin. But he also knew that our sin would need to be atoned for before he could grant anyone eternal life. So nothing in history has been out of his control. And this all indicates that he has a timetable for everything. And I'll tell you, there's one passage in Ephesians that I just simply love, that to me is a nutshell of God's plan. And I'd like to read it, if I can, from the Weymouth translation, if I could. This is Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. All right, go ahead. Okay, it says, So abundant was God's grace, the grace which he lavished upon us when he made known to us the secret of his will. And this is in harmony with God's merciful purpose for the government of the world when the times are ripe for it. The purpose which he has cherished in his own mind of restoring the whole creation to find its one head in Christ, yea, things in heaven and things on earth to find their one head in him. Man, isn't that awesome? That, that is. See, that, that gives you a real sense, like you said, a nutshell picture of the power of the plan of God, and Jesus is the centerpiece. Yeah, you know, to me, it says that God cherishes, that word cherish is so precious. He cherishes the idea of bringing all creation under the headship of Christ. But before that can happen, the tabernacle shows us that God must address sin. By illustrating it so long ago, it shows us that he wasn't surprised when Adam sinned, but rather he's made provision for eradicating sin, and not just the act of sin, but even the desire of sin in man's heart. You know, in the tabernacle, we have many types of sin offerings, depending on who sinned, the type of sin that was committed. And to me, that shows that God doesn't just paint with a broad brush, but that he considers the circumstances of sin and he adjusts the requirements accordingly. So that really is telling us God, God has got it covered. He had it covered from the very, very beginning. And the tabernacle is a tool of revealment that shows us the truth is there. It has been there, and it continues to be there. And that should give us confidence. We shouldn't look out at the world and worry that things are going to go really bad for mankind. It shows us that God has a plan. He's working it out. There's a certain timetable. I like that passage. It says when the times are ripe for it, it's going to happen. So we can have confidence in that. And like I said, there's many levels of lessons here. Another feature to me that supports the concept that there are two ages of salvation is that in the tabernacle, the high priest and his family actually received atonement before the nation of Israel. And that shows that during this gospel age, this Christian age, which we're now in, the spiritual priesthood receives atonement, while mankind, pictured by the rest of Israel, will receive atonement in the millennium. To me, again, it's another support of this understanding that there are two ages of salvations. But there are, are many other offerings that were not sin offerings. There were burnt offerings, peace offerings, meal offerings. These are all significant. And I'll just mention briefly that we've developed a, a fairly comprehensive chart that I'd be glad to send to any listener that details all the offerings and in, in just a brief explanation of what they mean. And lastly, I'll say that the priesthood is something that we haven't even looked at, but again, is very significant. It explains the role of Jesus and the church as God deals with the world of mankind through them. So it helps us to see the work 
that God has planned for the church in the future age. Okay, so let's let's wrap this up. Uh, if you do want to get that chart, you can email us at inspiration at christianquestions.com, and we can get that to Tom, and he'll send it to you. So, Tom, very quickly now, why why study the tabernacle? You've given us a million reasons, but, but sum them up. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it shows us rich insights into the character of God. It shows us what he requires. It shows us his plan of salvation and what will be required to gain eternal life. Man, these are pretty important things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking about life and death, right? How do you get life? This is it. Yeah. And then the progressive picture of the tabernacle, we see that there's only one proper way to approach God. We're not going to find him out in the world. We won't find him in another religion or any other lifestyle. The only way to God is through a belief in the value of Jesus' sacrifice. There's the brazen altar. Then we have to understand our need for cleansing. There's the laver. Then we have to dedicate ourselves to God and take advantage of every spiritual help that he's provided. There's the holy. But all along the way, there are obstacles that challenge us to give up, to hold back, to remain, to not remain dedicated to God. And I'd like to go back to that Josh McDowell quote, that laws without relationships lead to rebellion. I love that. I think it's so true. The tabernacle is all about gaining an eternal relationship with God. If we can understand in the depth of our hearts the value of that relationship, we will not hesitate to do whatever God asks of us and be glad for the privilege of approaching him. So the lesson for a Christian is keep pressing on. Don't stop. Follow that whole process through through the court, through the holy, and hopefully enter into the most holy. Don't let the world distract you or keep you away from serving this one thing that will bring eternal life. Tom, thanks so much. This has been an amazing, amazing excursion into something that most of us thought was a throwaway from the Old Testament. It is not a throwaway. It is a goldmine for understanding the mind of God, the plan of God, and the path of those who seek God. May God bless us as we look to find and understand the meanings in the tabernacle. Tom, thank you. And folks, My pleasure, Rick. think about it. Listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions and iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, very different subject. We'll be talking about do people become angels when they die? Interesting question. Great answer. Talk to you next week.